We Unitarian Universalists like to say that we have a free pulpit and a free pew. The freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach according to the dictates of my conscience about whatever topic I feel is most significant and meaningful to this time and place, as opposed to what some external authority tells me that I should preach about. And likewise, the freedom of the pew or the freedom of the detachable seats means that you're free to follow the dictates of your conscience. You're not expected to believe something just because someone else preaches that perspective from this pulpit. That being said, once a year this congregation holds an auction, and all sorts of things are auctioned, from special baked goods to special dinners, from Sudoku or bridge lessons to help with yard work or housework or many similar offerings. And you can be on the lookout for the next annual UUCF auction in early November. But I bring up the auction now because last fall I offered a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice. Your chance to hear a sermon on whatever topic you are passionate about or think would be particularly challenging, meaningful, or provocative. So if there's a sermon you're hoping to hear, the next annual auction may be your chance to bid on another sermon. But for last year, Nancy Lorai and Bob Ladner, are they, I think they're out there somewhere, right? All right, they're, they're here, combined forces to win the auction sermon, choosing bullying as the topic. However, a twist on the auction sermon is you get to pick the topic, but the freedom of the pulpit ensures that you don't get to tell me how to preach on that topic. <laughs> so Nancy and Bob's only instructions were, were for me to preach about bullying, but don't worry, I assured them, I'm against it. <laughs> the topic of bullying is a great example of a vitally important topic that I wouldn't necessarily preach about if someone weren't encouraging me to do so. There are 10,000 things to preach about in a Unitarian Universalist congregation and only 52 weeks per year, and only 40 of those Sundays do I preach from this pulpit. So I'm grateful to Nancy and Bob for giving me an excuse to research and preach about a topic that needs to be, I suspect, addressed in far more pulpits around this country. At the same time, I should say that from the outset, that for whatever confluence of reasons, I was not particularly bullied during my childhood. Now, to be clear, I wasn't the first one to get picked for sports, and I tended to fit in more with the drama club and the band geeks and the misfits than I did with the popular kids. But maybe because I didn't even try to hang out with the popular kids, I didn't set myself up for bullying so, or tried to prevent that from happening. From what I recall, middle school, though, 7th and 8th grade in my corner of South Carolina, was the time that I remember as being the most precarious and the most toxic environment, the time when I remember feeling the least confident about myself and caring the most what other people thought about me and feeling at the same time that I had the least control over what other people thought. Middle school is the time I remember feeling like I needed to be the most on guard against putting myself in a position in which someone might bully me, and knowing that also was not all within my control. So perhaps the most hopeful advice I can give if you or someone you love is in a similar position is that there are many reasons to expect that it will get better especially as you graduate or go to college, you will have more control over what you do and to who you hang out with, who you surround yourself with. 
But And thinking back even earlier to elementary school, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I remember being absent one time for a few days. It was a pretty rare occurrence. I think I had a stomach virus or something along those lines. And I returned to find that a classmate had blamed a misunderstanding on me, conveniently, because I had been out for a few days. I got scapegoated. And since I had no idea what had happened in my absence, this is before you know, everyone had a smartphone and was constantly texting and you knew what was happening even if you were out of school, I had had no opportunity to present my side of the story. So I was totally blindsided by all this when I arrived that morning and my parents dropped me off. So I couldn't understand at first why everyone was mad at me in the schoolyard that morning. And I managed to figure it out only minutes before the bell rang. We had to go inside and were then trapped by teachers saying things at the front of the classroom so I couldn't... Uh, but to, and to complicate matters, the person who had told these lies about me was late to school that day. So I remember kind of seething throughout the morning and planning to confront the student in question during recess. So I think the person was bigger than I was. So I'm not sure exactly what I had planned. And fortunately, other students managed to diffuse the situation, probably through some note passing uh, before then. <laughs> but if that situation had played out differently, a bullying dynamic could have arisen. And I'm grateful to those students who intervened to keep that situation from escalating. It's what some people call being an upstander instead of a bystander. Now, similarly, I can remember being on a swing set around that time, maybe a month or so later, and a group of students approached and started taunting a new girl who had just transferred into our school. And she was, just happened to be swinging beside me. We'd both gotten to the swing set. And in recent weeks, she'd often responded to such taunting with fierce anger, which only encouraged the people because they could trigger her and, and make her uh, kind of perform and, and get angry, and they found it amusing. So when the taunting started again, right in front of me or beside me, I remember whispering under my breath, don't. It was almost inaudible. And she didn't respond to their taunts. She just kind of kept swinging, and they fortunately walked away. And after they left, I remember turning to her in surprise and asking her, why didn't you respond to them? And she said, I heard you say not to. And I was really stunned. I mean, it's one of the first times in my life that I can remember feeling how powerful just the smallest act of intervention can be. I mean, I didn't even think I said it loud enough for her to hear me, especially with the people very vocally taunting her. So it really just struck me, and I've always remembered that, how much influence an individual can sometimes have to either escalate a conflict or defuse it. I can remember in high school, whenever somebody was starting to get into conflict, people would start yelling, fight, fight, fight. And what does that, I mean, that escalates. And all of a sudden, people that might have wanted to extricate themselves all of a sudden feel like they can't because now everyone's watching. And that student to whom I whispered, don't, was a victim of bullying. I, again, for the most part, was not. And the difference, according to the experts, is repetition. Emily Bazelon, whom you heard earlier an excerpt from in the Spoken Meditation, has written a book on bullying titled Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. She notes that the standard definition of bullying was set starting in the late 1970s by a Swedish psychologist who noted three primary criteria. It has to be verbal or physical aggression. It has to be repeated over time. And it has to involve a power dynamic. So that bullying is all three of those things. Verbal or physical aggression that's repeated over time and that involves a power dynamic or a power imbalance. 
Interestingly, if you look back to the 1600s, the word bully originally meant sweetheart or darling, such as in the line from Shakespeare's Henry V, from my heartstrings, I love the lovely bully. The bard meant that the character in question was professing love for a sweetheart or darling, of course, not some Stockholm Syndrome-like situation of victims or hostages feeling love for their abusers or captives. But related to the vagaries of how language changes over time, the comedian John Fugelsang has argued that in our own day, the word bullying is dangerously close or has already become drained of the seriousness of its meaning. And from reading and listening the past few days to the many contemporary stories of bullying, one common theme is parents' deep chagrin at not having their, their children's claims of bullying taken seriously. And for these reasons, John Fugelsang says that in his opinion, bullying is a flaccid, outdated, Archie's comic era term. It's so quaint and toothless. It's like saying that De Niro bullied Nick Nolte's family in Cape Fear. How many of you have seen that movie? You know, it's, it's a while back now, yeah. So it would be a, you know, that would be understating the situation. Uh, it doesn't do justice to the kind of brutalizing that would cause a kid to kill himself or to kill herself. The word dates back to 1693, and it's had a good run, Fugelsang says. Call it peer abuse. Call it un-American persecution. Call it criminal harassment. Call it anything that makes people take it seriously. Psychologists have noted along these lines that asking children or teenagers, how many of you have been bullied, often will not get a response. You won't get any hands raised. But when you start breaking it down by behaviors, raise your hand if someone has spread rumors about you. Raise your hand if you've watched someone being ostracized in the last week, or if someone has called you a derogatory name this week, many hands will shoot up. Get creative to get kids talking. Hey, how are things going on the team morale-wise? Do kids sit in cliques during lunchtime at your school? According to the U.S. Department of Education, 13 million children, 13 million children are bullied each year in the United States, and 3 million each year stay home from school because they feel unsafe. So perhaps Fugelsong is right, that if the powers that be in a particular situation aren't taking claims about bullying seriously, one strategy is to change the language that we use to talk about bullying, at least in that situation, to try to better communicate the severity of the problem. Along these lines of how serious bullying can be, my colleague, the Reverend Deborah Hoffner, tweeted this past week that the person who bullied me in elementary school's birthday showed up on my Facebook timeline today. It's amazing that her name still hurts. Those long-time wounds from bullying are not unique to her. They continue to fester years later, and it's all the more reason to create systems that foster empathy and character that are necessary to diffuse verbal and physical aggression before it becomes a repeated pattern of abuse, before it becomes bullying. As I've sometimes heard the old saying reinvented, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can really hurt me. According to the New York Times, researchers found that victims of bullying in childhood were 4.3 times more likely to have an anxiety disorder as adults compared to those with no history of bullying or being bullied. 
Bullies who were also victims were particularly troubled. They were 14.5 times more likely to to develop panic disorders as adults compared to those who did not experience bullying and 4.8 times more likely to experience depression. Men who were both bullies and victims were 18.5 times more likely to have suicidal thoughts in adulthood compared to participants who had not been bullied or perpetrators. Their female counterparts were 26.7 times more likely to develop agoraphobia, anxiety in situations where the sufferer perceives the environment as being difficult to escape or to get help compared to children not exposed to bullying. Bullies who were not victims of bullying were 4.1 times more likely to have an antisocial personality disorder as adults than those never exposed to bullying in their youth. And these effects persisted even after the researchers accounted for pre-existing psychiatric problems or other factors that could have contributed to these psychiatric disorders like physical or sexual abuse, poverty, family instability. Bullying is not a harmless rite of passage, but inflicts lasting psychiatric damage on par with certain family dysfunctions. The pattern is similar to patterns we see when a child is abused or maltreated or treated very harshly within the family setting. It's that serious. And in today's world of smartphones and almost constant internet connection, the new frontier of cyberbullying has made bullying almost impossible to escape for some victims. And although although this sermon is principally focused on bullying during childhood uh, and young adulthood, there are many workplaces and home environments in which bullying continues into adulthood. And arguably the greatest cause of childhood bullying is precisely adults who bully children. The lyrics from the musical South Pacific come to mind, that you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed into your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people who are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. That girl who was bullied that I whispered don't to was the only African-American child in our all-white private school. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you were six or seven or eight, to hate the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. The greatest cause of childhood bullying is precisely adults who bully children and whose children bully other children in turn. And tragically, some of the worst offenders in creating a culture of bullying are our politicians and our celebrities. To name only two of many recent examples, I would argue that the only reason John Kerry is the Secretary of State of the United States at this moment, although I don't have any particular issue with Kerry, well, I could name a few, but it's really on the side, but Susan Rice, I don't know if many of you remember that, Susan Rice was relentlessly bullied by partisan politicians until she declined her candidacy for that position. Or looking to the arena of sports, Coach Mike Rice at Rutgers was recently fired. How many of you saw the videos of that? You can see them on you. Very disturbing. It was uncovered that he had this vast, repeated pattern for years of shoving players during practices. I mean, of firing basketballs violently at them, of screaming homophobic slurs at them. When our politicians and coaches are bullies instead of statesmen and instead of mentors, is there any surprise that there's an epidemic of bullying in our culture? The good news is that an increasing number of people are seeking to change our culture of bullying into what Emily Bazelon calls a culture of character 
and empathy. Back in 2002, you know, all the way up until 2002, for all of recorded history, there were 1,391 English language books tagged with the keyword bullying according to WorldCat, which is a catalog of libraries around the world. As of last year, 500 new books have been added on bullying in just the past 10-year period. But in, and in only one sermon, it would be impossible for me to do justice, even to the last 100 pages of, on solutions in Emily Bazelon's book alone, or to the last 100 pages on what can we do in the book Bully, which is based on the 2011 documentary of the same name. Have any of you seen that? documentary called Bully. It's really worth seeing. It's on Netflix streaming for any of you that have that. But I would recommend those two resources, Bully and Emily Bazelon's book, as a good starting point if you or someone you love is in a bullying situation. And the appendices to those books are packed with resources that can help you. Now, looking to the largest spheres of where can we go from here, having named the problem, some anti-bullying activists are seeking to pass laws to regulate bullying and to introduce consequences. And there's reason for hope on this front, too, of tangible social change that's already been put in place. Before the year 1999, no states had laws that clearly addressed bullying. Now, 49 do. That's a sea change on the state level in only 15 years that parallels that increase that I noted a few minutes ago of the 500 books that have been added to the previous 1,300 about bullying in just a decade. The current holdout, if any of you are interested, is Montana, and I don't know the current politics on the ground in that state that have prevented an anti-bullying law from being passed there. I suspect, as was the case with many of the laws, that it probably had to do with conservative activists concerned about specific language being put in bullying laws that address bullying against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender youth. And that, that's normally what prevents bullying laws from being passed is that specific language. I suspect that's the case in Montana. So then you need to look from the state level to the federal level, and anyone seeking to intervene in a seemingly intractable bullying situation should know about the 1999 Supreme Court case Davis versus the Monroe County Board of Education, which extended to schools the rules about sexual harassment that previously applied only to the workplace. Writing for the majority, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor writes that a school could be held liable for showing, quote, deliberate indifference to harassment that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it deprives victims of access to education. In addition, sometimes the Supreme Court gets it right. The U.S. Department of Education has made it clear that a gay student could also seek the protection of Title IX of the Federal Civil Rights Act to stop harassment. The main weakness, however, of the 49 state-level anti-bullying laws is that they're a patchwork of 49 different approaches. The bills vary in their definitions of bullying, in their requirements, and the protections afforded to students. It's the problem we're about to see with the Health Care Act, right, with the fact that we don't have Medicare for all. We're going to have 50 different solutions to this problem. So a, a 2011 report by the U.S. Department of Education showed that only a handful of states follow best practices shown to be effective in reducing bullying. So the next step that many anti-bullying activists are seeking is a federal anti-bullying law. So if you're looking for something to do, what you can do is contact your representatives and say, help get this federal anti-bullying law out of committee, which is where it's currently languishing. Attempts have been made to pass a federal anti-bullying law every year annually since 2003, but it has not yet passed. 
Uh, the most recent iteration, you can Google it, is the Safe Schools Improvement Act, and that's the one languishing in committee. That act would solidify the requirement for schools to address bullying and hold them accountable to collect data on the incidences and in what they use to response, so that then you can have a database to draw from and to learn best practices. Now, there's so much more to say about preventing bullying and for stopping it once it starts, and I'll include, again, links in the manuscript version of this sermon to resources um, to, to look into this more yourself, for your school district, for your friends and family. But for now, let me end with a notion from my favorite marketing guru, Seth Godin. One of his books is titled, We're All Weird. <laughs> and there's something deeply right about that notion that we are all weird. As an example, the headlines come to mind about the Boy Scouts of America voting to allow openly gay young people as members while continuing to exclude openly gay adult leaders. Now, the Girl Scouts have been getting this right on inclusion for a long time, but the Boy Scouts have been recalcitrant. And one of the arguments I've heard repeatedly over the years from more traditional groups working against equal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender citizens is that the ultimate goal of such human rights work is to make being lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender normal. Now, the only thing I know to say is that you're right. That is the end goal, <laughs> to reveal the truth that all families have value adopted families and single-parent families, families with two moms and families with two dads, families with transgender parents, families with straight kids, and families with gay kids. We don't need to just focus on so-called traditional nuclear families. All families have value. Or as I've seen in the bumper sticker, if you've ever been to Colorado, you may some, see some bumper stickers um, related to James Dobson's Focus on the Family. It says, focus on your own damn family. Uh, so... All families have value. And moving toward a culture that doesn't just tolerate diversity, but one that accepts and celebrates diversity, that in the end is the greatest contribution we can make to ending a culture of bullying and creating a culture of empathy, character, and diversity. Creating a culture where it's the norm that we're all weird. And I'm grateful to be part of a congregation that's committed to turning that dream into a reality for all families, to creating a world that's safe for all of us in all our diversity, including and especially our children.